Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we will be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We will be sharing real life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today's guest is an entrepreneur, an organizational psychologist, and a person dedicated to the teaching, instruction, and development of women. As one of the top leading female negotiation experts in the US and Latin America, she has trained and consulted with thousands of corporate leaders in over 200 blue chip companies throughout 22 countries. She developed and launched the first multicultural women's executive leadership program in partnership with the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. We are excited to welcome founder and CEO of the Dr. Yasmin Davids Leadership Institute, Dr. Yasmin Davids. Yasmin, welcome to the Dale Carnegie Take Command podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on this podcast. Well, thank you. It's an honor to have you with me. And you know, I've really appreciated getting to know you just prior to the show and researching you. I mean, you are a speaker, an author, you have a PhD in organizational psychology, you're an entrepreneur, you've started a leadership institute, which has helped countless women become the best version of themselves. And I know it's a passion of yours and a commitment of yours. So looking forward to talking to you today about you and about leadership. I'm excited. So you have said that you found your passion at five years old. Tell us about that. Five years old, I still remember the moment that I found what my passion was. And that is a moment where I was speaking with my mother because we grew up in a very dysfunctional family. My father was an immigrant from Ecuador and my mother an immigrant from Mexico, didn't speak the English language, came here, had their children and were really committed to having a better life for their children. However, my father was very abusive to my mother, to us as young girls, he only had girls. And I remember feeling that this wasn't fair. Like, why was it that mom just always had to stay quiet and she couldn't even ask questions because she would be slapped because it wasn't appropriate. And so I said, mommy, you know, why does this happen? Why does daddy do this? And I didn't understand, you know, my innocent mind. And she said, Miha, that's just the way things are. And I said, Oh, no, mommy, when I grow up, I'm going to change the world and make it better for women. And she said, how are you going to do that? I said, I don't know, I'm just going to do it. And I literally remember at that moment, making a conscious choice. It was my own little self trying to take control of my life. I felt so helpless at that time that I couldn't help my mother that I felt I'm going to make this better. And it gave me a purpose to continue focusing on which I have for the rest of my life. It's incredible what you've been able to do coming from that moment. What happened after that, though? I mean, you were in this horrible situation. Were you able to get out of that? It continued. It was even when I was eight, I remember asking my mom, you know, ask her, let's leave again. And please, mommy, let's go. And she said, Miha, I don't speak the English language. I don't have any skills. If I leave, we're homeless. But whatever you do, don't be like me. You know, go to school, get an education, because my mother and father had third grade educations. And that's the day I decided that I was going to be the most educated Latina that it could ever be possible. So we continued, we stayed and we endured until the age of 20 when my father tried to physically kill us. Our family, my mother, sisters, and I, of course, you know, we all survived. And I went into a deep depression after I had PTSD, chemical depression, and didn't know. 
And I was a student at USC and I was suicidal. So I turned to drugs. I turned to methamphetamine in order to self-medicate. But I was a closet user. I was so ashamed because I was on the dean's list. I was like, you know, top A student. And I didn't know if I was this powerful woman or because I was doing so well, working two, three jobs on campus, or if I was just somebody who couldn't get out of bed, physically couldn't function without a type of drug to give me the energy. I ended up, you know, becoming suicidal again, long story, I ended up in rehab. And I remember being there and finding a community of, you know, different individuals. There was 12 of us. There was a CEO of a billion dollar company. There was a homeless 16 year old kid and we were all equal. It didn't matter wealth. It didn't matter age or it didn't matter class. We were all there to support each other. And we were all there to ensure that each of us was able to stay what they call on the wagon. And I realized that the reason I was suicidal was because I felt so alone for so many years. And that now that I had a community, it gave me purpose to live. So I made a conscious decision that anything I built, because I always think big, I go, go big or go home. I'm going to build, you know, huge companies. I'm going to build foundations and it's going to be based around community because there was true leadership in this rehab because we were all there to support each other. And each of us would step up to be a leader depending on the need. So I learned a lot about leadership as a child and in rehab. <laughs> Sounds like it really was a life lesson. What did you discover about yourself when you discovered this community? Because it sounds like that community really was a key part of you getting to the next level of your life. You know, I discovered a lot of what I use now in leadership. I discovered psychological safety. The first night I got there, I wasn't able to sleep before. But the first night I got to rehab, I slept 15 hours. And there was nothing different besides me feeling safe. And so I realized that when I felt that I was understood, that I belonged and that I was supported, I was able to heal. I was able to share. I was able to become the better version, the best version of myself for that time in my life. And so I really learned that when you give human beings, individuals, the space to feel that they're part of something greater than themselves, to feel that they can contribute and to feel safe and sharing ideas, whatever it may be, that they will flourish. It's when they feel shut down, when they're in fear and they don't feel psychologically safe. So there's so many lessons, life lessons that I have lived through there that I learned that I now bring to my community and leadership. We forget sometimes that role of other people around us. I find young people will often think I need to do this myself. I want to be independent, right? I'm going from my youth to my independence, but what we really do need other people. We live in community. We need our strength to some degree from community. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, I was in a conversation with one of my students yesterday. I was doing a negotiation practice exercise and she came in taking care of business, right? And the other two women she was negotiating with, they felt thrown off. And so when we did a debrief, she was like, I took care of business. I said, okay, but at the end of the day, did you nurture the relationship? with these women. And the women said, no, we wouldn't want to do business with her again You know, <laughs> in this role play. And she realized that it's not just taking care of business. That's definitely part of it. There's so much more. Everything comes down to relationships. And ultimately, that's how we can progress as people. That's how we find fulfillment. Absolutely. Unfortunately, our leaders forget that sometimes, right? That it's relationships. But you know, at the end of the day, no one really teaches that to you in college. No, not in college, unfortunately. You get out of college and you've got maybe an education, but a lot of the most important things we learn maybe afterward or separately. So you ultimately did get your degree and your PhD in organizational psychology. 
Right. Yes. What would happen was that I published my first book called Empowering Latinas, Breaking Boundaries, Freeing Lives. It kind of took me on this keynote speaker, kind of 22 countries career. And then organizations started calling me to come in and help empower, develop their Latina talent. And so as I was going into organizations to help work with their Latina talent, I realized it didn't feel safe enough within the organization to really share how they were feeling like they didn't belong and all that. So I realized that I wasn't maximizing my skills of helping them and they were maximizing their experience. So I said, I am going to go back, get my organizational psychology doctorate, and then I'm going to create my own institute so that organizations can send women to me and they can build community and feel safe. So that's why I went back to school. And I also felt I was giving women, like they say, potatoes and meat. I was giving them potatoes and no meat. I was giving them hope, but no tools because I didn't have them yet or knew how to teach them. So I wanted to go back to school gather those tools that I wanted to be able to provide the women and so that they had the package deal of inspiration and tools and then have a safe place for them to come. And that's when I partnered with the USC Marshall School of Business. So you just mean this then goes back to your vision as a five-year-old, this passion that you had and now you're fulfilling it. What was it like to start this institute? I wanted to start an institute, but I wanted to start it with a strong credibility. So I wanted to get an academic institution to back me and the dean. <clears throat> the USC business schools. And I had been dear friends since I was undergrad student there. He had seen my career evolve and empower women all these years. So I went back to him and I said, I want to build this institute. So when he said, yes, they had never partnered with an individual. They only usually partner with institutions. At that time, it was just me, an individual. He said, yes, let's do it. I remember thinking, okay, it was a natural progression of passion. It was a natural progression of passion of empowering and doing everything I needed to do to provide that psychological safety, because I believe that is the basis to this day, we are very strict and our principles protect that psychological safety within our institute. And we have strict rules about participating in our programs. And so I feel that even to this day, psychological safety supersedes profit for me, for my institute, because that is the basis of feeling safe. And I would say about 99% of our women go through transformational identity shift process because of psychological safety. So I think safety is very important because at five years old, I didn't have it. I didn't have emotional or physical safety. So now as a woman, as a CEO, I now have the power to create that safety in my home, in my personal life, and in my business. It's so important. I'm curious. I mean, the term psychological safety is one that is used so often these days. I know we talk about it in Dale Carnegie. A lot of others talk about it as well. How do you define psychological safety and what are some of the things that you do to help women who come to you feel that psychological safety? You know, it's interesting because it goes back to a question that my dear friend, the Dean asked me when we were having the conversation about having a multicultural women executive leadership program partner with USC. He's like, how do I justify this? He said, how do you teach leadership different to multicultural women? And I thought about that and I said, I can't answer that because you don't teach it differently. So I did my own research and I went back and I asked the women, how is this different than other leadership programs you've done? And when the dean came to speak to the women, the women shared, what it is, is that we don't teach it different. The women show up different. And why that is, is because they said they get to take their armor off. And so what that means is that we don't teach them there is one way to be a great leader. We teach them there's seven different philosophies that we believe in. You pick what's best for you and you create your own based on your own authenticity with all of your blackness, with all of your Latinaism, with all of your being Jewish, whatever it may be, take that part of you and incorporate it into leadership 
at the end of the day, it's part of who you are. And I love Dale Carnegie principles. I believe in all of them. I think they're spectacular. I would say it's Dale Carnegie with some flavor in it, meaning like the multicultural aspect of being proud to be a Latina and incorporating that into my leadership style. So much of what you're saying is you're encouraging women to be vulnerable. And that's hard. All of us have kind of a guard that is up, so to speak, until we really get to know people, get comfortable, especially people who've got trust issues, that may be really hard. How do you encourage people to be vulnerable? If someone's listening to this podcast right now, why would they want to do that? Why would they want to take the risk of putting themselves out there and potentially being weak or being vulnerable? I completely understand. So we kind of worked backwards. It was an organic process that we did. And now it's systematic. It's systems we put in place within our organization to make that happen. So for anybody that's listening and wants to know how to do that, it needs to start with leadership. It starts with me, part of the pre-work that they do. Well, first of all, they need to be interviewed to be in the program, not just anyone can join. And they, through the interview process, they're asked if they're willing to be vulnerable, if they're willing to help other women rise, not just themselves, because if it's just for them, we would refer them to other programs. They're not meant for our program. Our program is, you know, pull up as you rise, helping you know other women rise, and it builds community. And then through the interview process, they're asked some personal questions and asked, you understand to go through a leadership identity shift it's from your core. Therefore, you need to shed some of the beliefs that you had before, and you have to be willing to be vulnerable. So they already know coming in. And then the pre-work, they read my first book, which is my life story. And I'm completely vulnerable. I talk about the addiction, father, all the abuse. So they see that the leader of the program is willing to put herself out there. And everything that I teach, I do it first as a leader. We use the True North curriculum, which is Bill George. It's an authentic leadership Harvard curriculum by Bill George. We use his books as the core of our curriculum as far as some of the leadership questions with my books and Brene Brown and everything we bring in prepares them for that launch weekend, we call it, three days. And then they share what's called the Leadership Crucibles, which is something they went through when they were a child that caused them to create a belief that's how they've kind of led in their lives. A lot of it is fear-based, you know, survival. So we have women from Harvard, we have women from MIT, and they come in and they're all intimidated. And then they start hearing the leadership team goes first. They share their crucibles. That sets the standard to open the doors. And then the women start sharing. And by the time we're done on the second day, we spend two days doing that. They are so connected because now they realize, oh my gosh, look at you have a PhD from Harvard and you went through the same thing I went through. And so they all become the same. It really equalizes the playing field and makes it like we're all in it together. And then from there, we put them in learning teams of five and an alumni advisor who's been through the program to help nurture that group. So it's really built for nurturing this sense of safety and vulnerability. And it builds, I mean, we've had thousands of women graduate and I would say hundred percent had to be vulnerable to be in the program. But there is 1% that only allow themselves to be a little vulnerable. And they're the ones that at the end say, I wish I would have been 100% in from the beginning because now I realize I would have gotten so much more out of it. So it's a whole systematic process we put them through for about six months from the moment they apply through the interview, through the pre-work, through the launch, and throughout the process until the end. So we have people from all over the world who listen to this podcast. I think the vast majority are, say, 22 to 45 they're looking for ways to you know, get to the next level of their lives or their careers. So that if someone's not able to take your program, what's some advice you give to somebody about how they can do some of these things on their own? 
First of all, I would say go buy the book called True North by Bill George. It's a workbook that you write in and it asks you questions and it asks you questions. As I always say, thank you, Bill George, because it's like psychology. You have to be able to lead yourself first. So I would say get to know yourself, get to know who you are and why you are who you are. And you could do that through books, workbooks, questions, and really have self-awareness. And a lot of that is, you know, Dale Carnegie as well, how to win friends and influence people. I think that's a basic 101 and really start getting to know yourself. Whatever you can do to get to know yourself is key because self-awareness and self-management are the ways you're going to be able to win people over to help maximize your team to be able to influence them from a place of empathy because empathy is the number one underlying trait for influence. And so that's key. It really is. And it's hard to be empathetic I mean, first, we have to start with ourselves. I mean, I can't help somebody else unless I myself am confident and secure and so forth. It's hard to be empathetic if I'm fearful or whatnot. You know, you talked about Dale Carnegie. I know you've taken many Dale Carnegie programs, talked about it on stage. I've seen you on stage. You're a terrific speaker. Thank you. Uh, What are some of the things that you've learned from Dale Carnegie that have been valuable to you? I believe in leading with humanity. That is what Dale Carnegie teaches, I think, in all the principles. And that is listen to people, really care really want to understand them, basically help them believe it's their idea. People want to feel important. People want to know they matter. Do everything you can to ensure that you make them feel that way. And if you can do that, they're going to trust you because you're really making an effort. But of course, it needs to be genuine because we can never use this as a manipulation tool because people will see right through it. But genuinely like and love people. If you can't do that or you don't know how to do that, honestly, I feel you shouldn't be a leader. That's really true. I mean, ultimately, our job as leaders is to help bring out the best in other people and accomplish great things together. And if we don't like people, care about people, want the best for people, how can we earn the role of leadership, really? Exactly. Unfortunately, though, we see a lot of them, right? I know. Yeah, there's different people who've got different thoughts about what it means to be a leader. And unfortunately, many of them create really toxic environments and demeaning environments and really unacceptable ones. Absolutely. We see that quite a bit. And so I always tell the women, do not let that kill your spirit. You know, that toxic environment, if you feel you can't get out of it, because you have to stay there for whatever reason, then shelter yourself and create your own environment in your own departments, whatever the departments that you lead, lead by your principles, at least try to nurture that. So what other advice might you give around that? And before you answer that, I was at a conference uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was speaking with a woman who was telling me about an environment she was in. It was just a tough boss type of situation. You know, many times people have to endure tough bosses, difficult people to be around and so forth. They're not necessarily toxic, but they're not necessarily empowering or motivating either. So, you know, in the range of different environments, what advice would you give to somebody who's in an environment, which is a challenging one or a difficult one, or one that just, they don't really enjoy You know, it's interesting because that's something we talk about a lot in our program. And one thing our women learn is once they go through the process of this crucible and they realize that everybody has a story of why they are who they are, they start seeing people at work differently. So in this toxic environment, let's just say they have someone named Bob that is toxic. They look at Bob differently now. They say, I wonder what Bob's story is that he shows up this way. I wonder what he went through in life that has caused him to be so horrible to people that they start building empathy and not accept it, but understand that there is something there. Because I don't believe people can be 
so toxic without having grown up in some toxicity. So it's empathy for individuals, not acceptance. There's two different things, acceptance and empathy. I can not accept the way you treat people, but I can understand why you treat them the way you do. Not you, but an individual, right? right. So they learn empathy for people and that they have a story. And instead of judging them, they learn how maybe they can talk to them or befriend them in a way that maybe they can help. Or, you know, they just learn to be not fearful of them anymore, not intimidated of them, but instead empathetic of whatever their story may be. If after being empathetic, they still are of the opinion that maybe they're in the wrong place, for example, and how do you encourage women in your program to have courage? We encourage them to try to be the change that they want to see in their organization by trying to engage you know, leadership at different levels. We do a 360 assessment and we have stakeholders that they have. And some of their stakeholders are their boss and their boss's boss. So they build relationships with them where they're now being heard more through this process of this leadership program and tell them, use this opportunity to share. If they listen to you, then you can help make change. If they don't, then you have a choice to make about whether you want to stay or not. I'm a big believer. If you try your best and you do everything you can and you feel that you can't move the needle there, you have to protect yourself emotionally and psychologically, and you need to be in an environment that supports you. So you need to make that move. Absolutely. And sometimes it's even just thinking about what happens if I don't make this move. Maybe I'm afraid to make the move, which is another thing. I want to ask you about failure because I know you have a quote about failure, which I'll mention in a moment, but it seems like a lot of times we have a perception of what risk is and we perceive something is a risky situation or it's really not. What's the worst that can happen? Your quote was, which I love is failure in life can be your greatest gift. If you look for the gift, talk about that. Yes. You know, I believe that I will never suffer in vain. That's my philosophy. And if I fail, I will never fail in vain, meaning that I will never say, well, that didn't go well. It's like, not only what can I learn from this, how can I take what I've learned from this and help other people? Because, you know, research shows that fulfillment comes from contribution. We can be happy and not fulfilled, right? We can have the greatest house, greatest family, greatest kids, greatest husband, and be happy, but still not feel fulfilled because fulfillment comes from contribution. So if you can be happy and find whatever you need to be happy, but use these experiences that we consider failures you can make them gifts for yourself because you learn, but make them gifts for other people by sharing like what I'm sharing here, me being vulnerable and sharing about my life can be a gift for someone who's ashamed right now, who's listening to this, ashamed of going through a drug addiction or whatever they went through and lets it disempower them from being the best version of themselves. So my story can be a gift to them. So I say, you know, someone's failure can be somebody else's gift can be a gift for your learning experience. So I always say, even when I'm going through something and it's collapsing in front of me, I'm like, this is painful, but I know I'm going to learn from this. So let me get excited because I know that I will not allow it to go unexamined, that I will learn from it. It's almost like, you know, the question is, how do we define failure? What is a failure? What I hear you saying, and I agree with this hundred percent, if we're learning from something, and we're getting better, or we can offer it to somebody else as a way to help them. Is it really a failure? Yeah. See, I don't even like the word failure. I just can't think of another word. You and I, Joe, will come up with a new word for failure because I don't believe in failure, but that's the word that people understand to understand the meaning. So that's kind of what I use, but I would say failure is my best friend. So many things can come from it. I know Dale Carnegie said that quote unquote failure could be a stepping stone for success. I personally think People equate failure with failing to meet my goal. 
I had a goal or an expectation and I didn't meet that. Therefore, it's a failure. But is it really? Like you said, what can we learn from that? How do we grow from that? Speaking of learning and growing, I know that you have grown an incredible amount as a person. You are certainly doing a lot of things. You look forward to the future. What are you most excited about for yourself for the years ahead? I'm excited about evolving as an individual, as a human being. I always say, I can't wait to see who I'll be next year. Meaning that I know that I will have new aha moments and that will evolve me into the next phase of who I'm supposed to be in this world and how I'm supposed to show up. Recently, within the last, I would say, eight months, I really started exploring about doing co-ed programs, men and women, because we mostly have focused on women. It's been brewing in my mind because I've had men over the years saying, what about us? What about us? What about us? And so I said, I need to do it because it shifted more about focusing on humanity. Like, I love our women. I love what we do. But we got that down now. And what I mean is like, okay, what's next? And I feel that our men are being left behind. There's nothing out there and there's different leadership programs, but I call our programs more transformational because we do like some deep work in there. You cannot like do all in our programs if you're not vulnerable. That's just kind of who we are. Men, they need a place to be vulnerable in a way that we still keep it safe. Everyone signs a confidentiality agreement. In 20 years, no one's ever violated it. They're compromising themselves because they want their own safe space. So they have it for others. So really doing co-ed programs, I have no idea what's going to happen because we launch our first one next month and I'm super excited, but I know only great things can happen from it because when you provide the space, we have the curriculum, we have the knowledge of the how-to. I can't imagine anything but greatness coming from them as far as men being able to be vulnerable and be respected while they're being vulnerable, be honored while they're being vulnerable and be loved while they're being vulnerable. I'm sure it'll be good for so many people. It's interesting. Part of what I think motivated you to start this. I mean, today we're recording this on May 26th. Yesterday was May 25th. It was two years ago yesterday that George Floyd was murdered. And I know that that had a major impact on influencing you in this direction. Yes. So when that happened, we had a multicultural women's program that was about 50% African-American women, Black women in the program. These are professional women, different levels. And I still remember that day, every cohort has a cohort thread in WhatsApp. And they post, that's how we communicate all day long. And one of our fellow Black sisters, we call them sisters, wrote in there, I'm in so much pain. I just needed to express myself. Immediately called a Zoom, you know, all hands on, anybody who wanted to show up from the cohort for the women to show up and just share, you know, I don't allow like any kind of cussing or bad words, but I'm like, it's all game here. (laughs) Whatever you guys want to share, meaning we just want emotion. And our black women were like, they were crying. They were saying, I'm so afraid to let my husband go to the market. My son, you know, I go jogging with my son at night because I'm afraid to let him. And I was seeing they're going, I'm Latina and I know racism, but never did I have to fear for my life in that way that our Black African-American brothers and sisters are having to fear for their lives. I was crying with them because I love these women. They're my students. I love all my students. And so I felt that I had to do everything I can for myself, but for my organization to make a statement, and that is to become an anti-racist organization, which we changed our mission statement to add that, but also start including our men because there's not anything really focusing on helping men deal with what is 
happening in the world and actually how to work with women too in ways that women are becoming more independent, more assertive, a lot of emotional intelligence and gender intelligence issues that really come to the table. So I think that was very significant for me to start seeing the world differently and not just focusing on women. First, I started with Latinas, then I went to multicultural women and then all women. And now it's larger than that. We need our men and we need to support our men and we need them to be evolved to work with us. So I think that definitely played a significant role. You are someone who's motivated by passion. You're someone who's motivated by desire for impact and purpose. As I think back about even when you were five and you had this internal drive and you had different things that have been catalysts for you, how do you encourage people to find their purpose if they don't know what their purpose is, if they are going through life, you talked about fulfillment. How do you encourage people to find their purpose? I always tell them, think about if there was anything that you can do in the world that you didn't have to worry about financials, you didn't have to worry about bringing home a paycheck or anything like that. What would you do from the core of your soul? What would you want to do? What inspires you? What motivates you to jump out of bed and want to just do something, you know, and sometimes they don't know they have to think about it because they've been functioning so robotically for so long that they're like, I don't know, I don't have time to think about that. So that's some of the exercises that we put them through. And then we tell them, it may be that your full-time job might not be 100% of your purpose. And that's where you want to stay because for financial reasons, you have to, you can find other ways to fulfill that purpose. I have chief human resource officer who loves her job, but her purpose is teaching, but she wants the nice paycheck, you know, and teaching doesn't give you the nice paycheck. So guess what? She teaches in the evenings and on weekends. And she gets that fulfillment and that's her purpose. And she's still able to live the life that she wants financially. So it's about balance. It's about either finding it in your job, if not finding it outside of your job, but being true to yourself and really exploring. There's an article, it's a Harvard Business School article about passion, passion to purpose, something like that. It gives you a roadmap on how to find your passion. It's interesting though. I mean, I think about in our Dale Carnegie programs, one of the first things we encourage people to do is to think about what their vision is. And many people go through day to day, hour to hour. I mean, we're just all so busy and all of a sudden we can find ourselves at a point in our lives and say, what happened? So the critical importance of taking time to think about what's really important, who's really important, how do I contribute? How do I make a difference? Something we all really need to do. Yes. I always tell people, are you living from a place where you can say, I am so happy and I'm fulfilled. And if that is a goal for you, then you got to seek until you find it. And I can honestly say that I live from that place, but I've worked hard to get here and stay here. I work hard to maintain it. So what other advice might you have for someone? I mean, you're working hard. How do you keep that kind of mental health? You exercise, you recommend the people. Yes. So I work out four times a week. I have a personal trainer. I work out four times a week. That clears my mind. I get a lot of sleep. I believe in self-empathy. I mean, how would you treat your best friend? You need to treat yourself. You know, I have fibromyalgia, which is where I'm limited on energy. So I really need to protect that energy. So I'm able to do everything I do, but I also protect me from the outside forces that are negative. So because I have my own business, I can choose who I want to work with and who I want to give off to my team to work with. And I can choose where I want to show up and where I don't want to show up. This has been by design because that energy around me is critical for me to stay in the state that I am. 
And so I protect it at all costs. And that means that I don't allow negative energy around me, but I also treat people with a lot of love and respect. So I'm very consistent on taking care of me. I have like 27,000 different coaches. And what I mean is whatever I need help in, I always seek help in whatever I need help in. And I stay humble. I stay confidently humble. And what I mean is I'm very confident who I am, but I'm very humble that something could happen tomorrow that can shatter my world. And so I need to be prepared to shift at any direction at any time. That's really true. And that's ultimately, I think about resilience. We don't know what kind of adverse situations could be in our lives later today, tomorrow. Things can change very quickly. But if we've got the right mindset, the right approach, the right skills and so forth, we can get through almost anything. It has been terrific interview. Any closing pieces of advice for our audience? I would say for individuals all over the world, be committed to getting to know who you are as an individual, who you want to be and how to shift into becoming the best version of yourself. Because we're always evolving and who you were yesterday doesn't have to be who you are today or tomorrow. You have the power to change that. You have the power to change behaviors, to change habits, to change who you are if you're not happy with who you are. My greatest joy is to see people living at their greatest potential for themselves and living fulfilled lives. Because if we had more people doing that, this world would be a much better place. And what you just talked about really is what this podcast is about, is taking command. You know, we take command of our lives and then we can be intentional and have more fulfilling lives. So thank you so much, Jasmine. Great to be with you today. Really appreciate it. I know everyone's going to enjoy this podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we'll definitely keep in touch. In today's Thought Leadership Spotlight, we have a special guest who shares how he found his purpose in living the Dale Carnegie principles and inspiring others to achieve what they want in life. Like Dr. Davids, our guest believes in the importance of living an intentional life and taking command. Please welcome our Dale Carnegie partner in Chihuahua, Northeast Mexico, Jose Rosario Garcia. Dr. Jasmine found her purpose when she was five years old. I was not so lucky. I discovered it in 2008. In June of that year, I decided to leave the Del Carnegie business in order to look for opportunities to make more money and to have more international experience. And I found an opportunity. A great company, a training company, offered me the position of vice president of sales and training for Latino America. And I was so happy for that. And I decided to share that with my mom. So I called her and after having me 20 minutes talking about it, she didn't seem very enthusiastic about that. So I asked her, what's wrong, mom? Aren't you happy for that? And she told me, son, as you know, I'm a person of faith and I did my best to make you a person of faith too. And I failed in that. But you made me so happy five years ago when you told me what you do in Del Carnegie, you told me that you live your life around the Del Carnegie principles, which are based on respect, inclusion, and love for others. And that you also dedicate yourself to inspire others to use them in their life. And for me, that is a person of faith. And now, son, you are telling me that you found another job. With Dale Carnegie, you didn't have a job. You had a mission, a purpose. 
That afternoon, after several hours of reflection, I went to sleep, and the next morning, I made a call to reject that offer and decided to return to Dale Carnegie to achieve my goals, but now with a clear purpose. Dr. Jasmine is right about the importance of purpose in our life. When we have it, everything changes. I learned what we do gives us the possibility to get what we want by helping others to get what they want, then we are living an intentional life, a life with purpose. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. Check out our resources page at www.dalecarnegie.com for more research, insight, and tools that will support your success in taking command of your leadership potential. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating it and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast.